Welcome to the Network Marketing Heroes Podcast, hosted by 40-year network marketing veteran, author of best-selling books, The Four-Year Career, and Mach 2 with Your Hair on Fire, and world-renowned speaker, Richard Bliss Brook. When it comes to success in network marketing, who better to learn from than leaders who have actually done it? Listen as Richard interviews top leaders and gives you a behind-the-scenes look at how they did it. You'll get incredible tips and duplicable actions you can do right now to build your own four-year career. Stay tuned after this episode for an exclusive discount code to get 10% off Richard's easy-to-use tools that will help propel your network marketing business to the next level at blissbusiness.com. Hey everybody, Richard Blissbrook here with yet another Network Marketing Hero Call. This is Hero Call number 107. I think we're going on halfway through our fourth year of interviewing extraordinary leaders in the network marketing profession that have crushed the four-year career. So before I introduce our special guest, I'll give you our standard disclaimer. Now, we, are, we, we don't interview people with the intention that what we're doing here is suggesting that all of you listening will build what our heroes have built. By mere definition, heroes are extraordinary people. Uh, I would say don't try this at home, except that's exactly what we're doing. Try this at home. <laughs> so, but obviously, you know, these people are one out of 10,000, one out of 100,000. They're rarefied air. They're extraordinary examples. And we bring you their story not to suggest that you will accomplish what they have accomplished but that if you have a vision of earning 500 a month or 1,000 a month or 5,000 a month or, or whatever your vision is for network marketing, by studying what these people did to build their extraordinary businesses, it is our intention to impart belief to you that you can do whatever it is you envision doing. Our guest today has one of the most impressive four-year career stories that I've ever heard. And of course, he brings an advantage to his build in that he's a 30-year network marketing veteran. So sometimes people see that as an advantage. Lots of times people that are in the position see it as a disadvantage because they've already talked to everybody they know and they've done it four or five or six times and either succeeded or failed or changed companies and then when you go about doing it again, I don't know. I, I'm not sure I would want that baggage, even if it were, even if they were successful. Anytime I hear somebody's resume built to the top of the comp plan five different times, <laughs> I kind of wonder about that. <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily want that. But uh, who we have with us today uh, from Windsor, Colorado, one of the top leaders in one of the most extraordinary legacy companies in our profession, Longevity, is Scott Ferdulis. And his wife, Juliet, is on a women's cruise, so she's not joining us, which is, I'm sure, going to be our loss. But Scott is hero called number 107, and we're going to dive into his story. Wait till you hear what this couple has built in network marketing. Welcome to the call, Scott. 
Thank you so much, Richard. It's really exciting and a privilege to be with you today. Beautiful. So you have a really cool story and it involves one of my good friends and one of the, one of the best leaders in our profession. We'll get to that. But to, to sort of set the stage, you've been in network marketing for 30 years. You want to tell us a little bit about that? Like before you got involved in longevity seven years ago, give us the thumbnail sketch of what were you doing in the profession? Beautiful. Well, just before joining Longevity about seven years ago, um, I was just kind of in a neutral place. I was consulting in the industry. I was helping some friends of mine that were running uh, administration levels and positions in other companies. I was giving some thoughts, some counsel, some advice around training, how to build successful teams, how to have co cohesiveness, how to have momentum and energy and excitement and enthusiasm, keeping the bar high, motivating factors, you know, making sure that people don't die off after they've put their sweat, blood, and tears into something. And so um, that's where I found myself prior to this. I was also spinning probably two or three other plates outside of that, just as an entrepreneur. I've always had an entrepreneurial side to me, and so I, I probably had three or four things going at the same time just prior to longevity. Okay, so people are always curious. I like to know, uh, share with us, what network marketing companies did you build in in that 30 years? Like a few years here, a few years there. We won't get into what happened that you left. You know, those are always fascinating stories for some other time, but give us a sense of your resume. What companies have you built in? Sure, so um, I, I was about 17 years old when I had the network marketing bug the very first time. I was in high school, I was, uh, I'd started, here's another entrepreneurial example, I'd started a window cleaning company with a high school friend of mine and we were running around uh, in between classes and after school and during the summers, knocking on doors, giving a great story about how we were young guys and we were hustlers and, and we were um, paying for private education and we were using window cleaning as a method. And our pitch at the time was basically, hey listen, we're not credentialed, we're not insured, we don't have all the stuff that typical companies have but we're hard workers and we got a great smile and so if you like what we do then pay us our bid we're gonna give you a free bid if you think that we're horrible pay us nothing so it was an, kind of an all-or-nothing thing and people like that and we had no shortage of work literally we had plenty going on uh, bought my first car in cash and so wow. here, here, yeah it was exciting here I was thinking about now, how am I gonna take something to college with me? I, I, I just started reading like self-help books and motivational books and I love people like Napoleon Hill, for example. And so I had some of that philosophy running through my head and I was thinking about duplication and going, man, my window cleaning career is about over. So how am I gonna pay for flight school, which was what I was on my way to do going into college? How am I gonna pay for that? That's expensive. And so um, my buddy who was cleaning windows with me, his father was really successful in Melaleuca. And he was, wow. a dentist. He was like a, a cosmetic dentist. And so um, he said, I'll tell you what, why don't you guys meet with me? So we did. We went to a, 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 a hotel and we heard him speak that night. And I was just totally floored. First time I really ever heard a great story on this vein. And, and I just, I sat like on the third row and, and I was leaning forward, Richard, like in my chair, like shaking my head, like everything just made so much sense to me. 
And I'm going, man, can I do this? Like, am I too young to do this? Can I do this? Can I pull this off? Am I good enough? Am I capable enough? And I kept thinking, yeah, I, I can do this. I can totally pull this off. But then I, I thought, man, it, maybe I'm just such a small fry. Will anybody really help me? And so that was my big question is, is, can I do this and will you help me? And he assured me, I will help you. So we got busy and we went to work. And um, you know, I found myself taking that business model right into college, let the window cleaning thing go. And um, here we were in college. And so that uh, was very, very good for me, good to me right out of my dorm room for the first couple of years. And then, oh my goodness, if only hindsight were just perfect. Um, I've made so many mistakes, Richard. It's just crazy. Um, sometimes the do-over button would just be phenomenal. And all you can do is say, you know what? I'm older. I'm wiser. I'm better off for the lessons. I've got thicker skin. And that's part of the journey, right? Is that you don't always make the right decisions. And life is the way it is. And you can only get you know, better and smarter and learn from it. You know, I, I, like, I like how Jim Rohn put it years ago. He said, don't wish for things to get better. Wish for yourself to get better. So I, yeah. I put on those types of quotes. And I said, okay, I'm, I'm better for it. Well, here's, here was probably mistake number one. It's called the grass is greener someplace else. So I had a friend of mine that I knew since grade school and he was going to a different college at the time. And he said, hey, are, are you near a fax machine? And I said, no. He goes, well, run over to the nearest fax machine and, and, then, and then call me up. You know, you use like the, the 25 digit calling card number. And so I called him up and I'm like, okay, I'm by a fax machine. He goes, tell me what it is. So I told him and I stood there and I waited for this fax to come off and he sent me a copy of a check. And so I saw that check, it was bigger than the check I was making, and I jumped into that company. And, 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 and it went well, okay? So it's not, it's not like that was the disaster recipe, but, but again, it's hindsight here. So um, company number two was uh, Equinox, Equinox International. So this was back in you know, the, the mid-90s mid or so, and uh, so we started building. And it went very, very well, very well, um, built that, business out of our dorm room. So Meluca was number one, Equinox was number two, you know, holding meetings in our dorm room, uh, empty lecture halls at night that weren't being utilized. It was like a network marketer's hog haven. Um, didn't have to pay for the space. If it wasn't being used, we were using the rooms. And it's like, here came the students. It's like, what are these guys doing? Why is there so much energy? And people started looking and looing into these classrooms and like, why is there a kid or a student up there, you know, lecturing off of a blackboard? And that gained some momentum and pretty, I'll never forget the day this happened. One of my, one of my business professors um, late in my college, um, he walked in and it was one of those sloped theater rooms and I saw him walk in on the upper deck and he's looking down and there's like students everywhere and it's, it's after hours. And I just thought, oh my goodness, I'm gonna get killed right now. This guy is gonna come in here. He's gonna walk down here and he's gonna say, this is blasphemy. This is not what you pay to come to school for. What is this hogwash? I literally thought he was gonna say that. And so I'm now sweating. And it's one of those moments when you realize like, you're not used to seeing your professors on that side of the audience. They're always in front of the room. And here I am, and I'm doing this overview, and I'm drawing pictures on the board and talking about, you know, hypothetical scenarios. And instead, you know, the professor started off up, up on the upper deck with his arms crossed, and, and he walked down the middle aisle, and I was waiting for it. I just kept talking, and he took a seat. And instead of anything happening when it was over, it was more like, how do I get involved in this? This is incredible. <laughs> That's really amazing. 
you know, what you're talking about here. This is remarkable. And so I think there was about six of my business uh, professors, counselors, role models that ultimately ended up in our organization, which was really cool. As a matter of fact, one of the um, one of the higher level administrators of our college actually resigned from his position because he was doing so well in our business. And I thought, wow, this is so telling. So now it's time for us to get married. I met a, my amazing wife, Julia, in school. And, you know, she asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up, which was a great question because she's probably thinking about who am I going to hitch my wagon to. And I said, well, you know, I'm in flight school and I'm getting a business degree. However, I think when I grow up, I'm going to be a network marketer. And she's like, what is that? So bless her heart. She came along my side and just helped, helped me build through college. And so really, Richard, one of the most spectacular things I could ever imagine is, you know, I, I could have gone into the Air Force. I could have gone out and, and gotten a job flying for an airline and, or, you know, something down that pain. That was the path I was on. That was the original intent. And instead of that, um, we had all the rationale in the world to say, why would we do that? Why, why would, you know, in a world where, where we look at just statistics of, of marriage success, you know, it's, it's around 50-50. So, and I'm right. thinking, okay, I, I came from a split home as a kid, and now here I am proposed to, and, and ready, to, and I'm engaged and ready to be married. And when I say I do, do I want to say I do, okay, honey, you go left in the morning at eight o'clock and I'm going to go right at eight o'clock. We'll go spin our plates for 10 hours with all the people that we said I don't to. And instead of, you know, how do we stay together? How do we, if we're really in love, how do we stay, you know, living our lives together instead of apart? And we just thought this industry was like the perfect answer to that question. So that was the fuel to our fire and that hunger that just kept us going, building and building and building and not ceasing. We, you know, we never missed events. We never missed functions. We never missed opportunities for training. We were constantly reading. And I think probably one of the craziest things we ever did that really just put it all out there on the line is there was like this big event coming and we wanted, we wanted to be up and coming um, success stories in the industry. And, and now here we were, we were newly married and we didn't have much. I mean, we didn't have like inheritances or trust funds or some, you know, blank check to go start our life. We were bootstrapping it. And that's probably what was so exciting. We had such simple, humble beginnings. We, and, and, and part of this was lessons that we learned through personal and professional development, you know, rather than all the gifts we received at wedding, you know, like China and silver and nice things. We just said, let's have some, um, let's have a, a big picture and let's have delayed gratification. So we saw what could be in the future if we paid the price now. Like if, if you pay the price now, life is simpler later on. But if yep. you delay that, life is tough later on. And so we went with that theory. And um, when we moved into our first place together after we got married, we had like a little two bedroom apartment and you wouldn't believe it. We, we just went all out. We had a cardboard table with four metal chairs. We went all out on our fine china that we got from our wedding. We went down to probably Walmart and bought plasticware that looked like the real stuff. And we had that for our, 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 our fine dining. And we had one sofa, um, a hutch. We were not thinking about TV. We had a theory like, you know, put all the products in front of the TV and when they're gone, then maybe you can watch your favorite program. 
So anything we could get that was motivating. Well, here's what we did. There was a big event coming and we're like, let's just lay it all on the line. And, and, and so how much money do we have? And so we looked at flights. The event at the time was in Las Vegas. We looked at, at flights and we realized, you know what? We could buy 19 airline tickets. This was before all the security stuff, right? So we said, right. look, we can buy 19 airline tickets. We'll buy our own, that's 21. And then we'll get our own tickets to convention, whatever that was. And we'll figure out who's gonna be the butts in the chairs on those flights and we can transfer those. And that's what we did. And you know, wow. we had to fill those seats, Richard. It was like, that was all the money we had. We had to recoup that expense and get that money back. And we knew that if we could get the people in front of the information at this event, that that event would do the work for us. Now, I don't have an exact number, but I can tell you through the years, if I take the average, you know, we've probably been to over 250 events um, over, over that 30 year period. And, and so I know that's a, that's a lot of events and we've, we've, we've paid the price of attending these events. But the thing that we've discovered is that events rule, events win. You know, I don't have all the answers. Juliet doesn't have all the answers. And I'm sure you'd agree with me, you don't have all the answers, but other people do. And if we build for those experts and put people in front of them, let the experts do that work. And there's no better place than bringing people into an environment that's energetic. That's what people are after. So that's what we did. Unfortunately, that company went out of business right when we were in our heyday and right in the middle of prime time. I'll never forget that. It was just a sinking feeling. It was like, oh no, you've got to be kidding me. Now what? And, and here's probably what most people would do, Richard, is they, you know, a lot of people I think would freak out and they panic and they'd probably run back to whatever was comfortable. And for us, we said, okay, if we get comfortable, that is the death zone. We cannot get comfortable. We have to stay uncomfortable. So let's do the hard thing again because the, 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 the end result is worth it. And we looked around, we interviewed, we knew what we were looking for. Um, and we decided that we were going to start our own network marketing company. <laughs> so um, a tough road to hoe. I mean, we probably picked the hardest thing in the world we could do, but we had two other partners. We pooled our money together. I think, I think it took about $5 million to start that company. So it wasn't right. like pocket change. We had some amazing people on board with us and we went nuts. We built that company uh, for about four years and then, uh, it came to a point where for me, I'm not saying for any other, so business owners, if you're listening to this, this is nothing against being a business owner. Um, I decided for myself that my favorite thing to do was to be in the field. I wanted to be in the field. I wanted to look in the whites of the eyes of people. I wanted to read their hearts and souls. I wanted to know what made them tick and click. I wanted to give them hope. I wanted to deliver that message and hold their hand from beginning to across that finish line. And so that was calling me. So, um, after about four years of being a business owner of a network marketing company, I decided that going into the field was important and I love to train. And so Richard, I was sharing this with you earlier. Um, one of the things that um, I had heard a lot of is, yeah, you know, network marketing is hard and, you know, is this like, and they'd fill in the blank, is this like, you know, a certain company? And, you know, I just, I got to a place where I'm like, what is the deal? Why do people even say that? And so I love network marketing. Like I, I have no 
qualms about it. It's, it's easy to rock, roll off my tongue as any other great company or great opportunity that's out there. I'm proud of network marketing. And with conviction and confidence, I tell the whole world, that's what we do. That's who we are as professionals. And so it's your attitude. It's how you come across. If, if we're like mamby-pamby and just kind of so-so about this and always tiptoeing through the tulips, I mean, of course people are going to behave or react a certain way. So I started um, a training system and a training concept where I, I wanted to prove that it didn't matter what your, the name of your company was as much as it mattered what the name was that you had. Who, who, who are you? What was your name all about? Were you hardworking? Did you have a good work ethic? Did you have integrity? Did you mean what you say when you said it? Um, were you an embellisher or were you somebody that, you know, told the truth? And, um, you know, what, 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 was, what was the big picture that you were after? So I went with that in terms of, of training and we called up a certain company and um, it was arguably at the time the hardest company in the world to build inside of. We called up that company and we joined. We, we came on board and it was so cool. Richard, it was, it was awesome because we were now able to prove a theory that we had that in fact it didn't matter so much what the name of the company was. It, it was our name and our confidence on the topic. And we had an incredible ride with that company. Incredible ride. And so we enjoyed it. We learned a lot by being there. The theory was proved. Um, coming out of that, um, we uh, went into consulting again and, and helping uh, friends and administrators inside of other companies um, uh, come up with training concepts and methodologies and programs that would allow for growth and sustainable growth and um, teach uh, systems, you know, when people don't always work, systems, you know, remain constant and, and very, very true. So implementing systems, it was a beautiful thing. And then Richard, some, you know, there's a turning point in my life that happened in 2011. And that's when I thought that I had the world by the tail at the time. And I realized, in fact, I wasn't even close. I was on death's doorstep. And that's where life got really interesting. So you got really sick, right? <clears throat> I did. Yeah. So, uh, you told me this story about how you built in that uh, very difficult company and then what happened that you decided to leave, which uh, that can be a conversation for another time. Let's get right to longevity. You've been a sales leader in longevity now for seven years. And your four-year career, even though you may have not have ever patterned what you did after a four-year career, uh, is awfully impressive. Let's start with the story about how did you find longevity? Because um, that's, a, that's a really good story. So what happened that you found longevity? And then we'll talk about how you built. Well, I was busy. I had plenty to do at the time. And um, I really felt like uh, I didn't need anything else added on my plate. I was actually attempting to kind of push some things back and scale back a little bit, kind of uh, to own my time. And the, oh my word, it's, I'm getting goosebumps thinking about telling the story and forgive me if I get emotional because um, it's hard for me to tell this story and I'm just being flat out honest about that. It's, it's something that I can recall as, as, as recently as yesterday. And uh, the reason it's so emotional is because I realize like how good life is today. Like I'm so excited, Richard, to be a, a, a husband. I'm so excited to be a, a dad, a father. 
I've got three phenomenal, amazing children that I just adore with all my heart and soul. And to see where their lives are at now and all the fun we've had, the challenges we've had, the things we've overcome together, the things we've grown through together, the incredible celebrations in life and watching my two older boys now, my oldest in college and my middle son in, in high school and, you know, both of them at the top of their games and, and our little caboose, um, our 14-year-old daughter that's in eighth grade right now. Um, what a joy it is to see all that and to realize, like, how close it could have been to have missed out on it. Now, obviously, if you're not here, you don't know what you're missing, but just to think about that, I wanna be here. I, wanna, I don't wanna miss anything. I don't wanna miss an aspect, a single moment that I have control over, whether it's in my marriage or in just parenting. So, yeah, like uh, sometime in 2011, mid-2011, I would have told you at the time if somebody asked me, how do you feel, I'd say, the old cliche, healthy as can be. Um, I felt like I was on top of everything, um, eating right, exercising, um, really in shape, climbing mountains, downhill skiing, backpacking, mountain biking, you name it, I was able to do it. And one day I literally woke up and I just, I knew something was wrong. I could just feel it. I, I don't have a way to describe it to you, except that ultimately symptoms, you know, started popping, popping up. And, and uh, I remember the first thing that was like a, a red alarm. I woke up one day and I saw the ceiling fan whirling around above the bed, but it wasn't making a noise. And I was on one side of my head on the pillow. And as I lifted up, because I thought that was odd, I always heard the ceiling fan. And I lifted my head up and then I heard it. And I started doing this and I'm like, oh my word, I'm completely deaf in my left ear. And it was <laughs> early in the morning, I just shook Juliet right out of her sleep. And I said, honey, you gotta wake up. I said, I'm freaking out, there's something wrong. And she said, are you sure? And I said, yeah, I, I cannot hear in my left ear. Well, quickly, the next set of symptoms coming on and it came on and it was like um, incredible, intense pain from head to toe, like, like, like a medieval torch, like someone was tapping little tiny nails into every millimeter of my skin from head to toe. And so there, that was a problem. And then I got nausea, I, I just vomiting chronically, um, losing weight, it was just pretty crazy. and as much as I could. I, I did not want to go to the doctor. I didn't want to go to the doctor. I thought, you know, if, if it had to do with my ear, I was scared to death that they were going to tell me that I had some brain tumor or, you know, some, something going on in my head. So it was like, here came the test. And, and I really never been to the doctor before. I, I'm a boring guy in many senses. I'm exciting from the standpoint, if it's adventure, I'm the most exciting guy on the planet, but I, I don't do drugs. I, I don't smoke. I don't drink. Um, I haven't destroyed my body in that way. I've found other ways to destroy my body. So here came the medical reports. There was nothing wrong that they could tell. MRIs, CAT scans, blood work, everything was coming up negative. And so ultimately they said, your body is deteriorating. We don't know what to do for you. There's nothing we can do except put you on painkillers. And so I started taking them. And this was oh, bad, to, bad to worse. So here came the pain pills and it started mild and it ramped all the way up to the grand mall of pain pills, which is Oxycontin. And so to get through a day, Richard, my pain levels would be on like a 9.9. .9. Um, I don't know what 10 would have looked like. I couldn't imagine it being any worse. And so the pain pills for me were like how to get it down to a seven if I could. So unfortunately that involved a, you know, 
plenty at a time. And every day, the weight of my own head pressing down on my body, I had to lay on the floor every day. I didn't want to go to the bathroom. I didn't want to go to family dinners and eat at the table. I couldn't talk to anybody. I didn't want any more sympathy calls. I gave my cell phone to Juliet and said, if it sounds like a miracle, then we'll take the call. But at this point, I'm praying for a miracle. Um, some docs had looked at me and said, you know, it doesn't look good. The only thing we can think of doing is taking out your spinal cord from about here to here, pulling it out and putting in a block, fusing you all together. And I'm thinking, how does that even work? I'm, I'm turning into a science project, a guinea pig. And I'm just going, no, we're not doing that. If I cannot get my body back normally, I just don't want to do anything like that. So we needed a miracle and we prayed for one. Now, no offense to anybody that doesn't, you know, believe in the power of prayer or have faith in their life. So this is my story and I apologize to you. I mean, no offense whatsoever. I just want to say that, you know, there was, there was nothing else to do. And so, you know, I was raised to have faith. And so we prayed and I just said, you know, God, give me another shot. You know, I'll give you credit for this story. So here I am by telling this story again in front of a lot of people, I'm giving credit where that credit's due. I could never have orchestrated this. And the way I prayed for this miracle, Richard, was that I could no way, shape or form take credit for it by orchestrating something. And then I'd know, and boy, do I know. Um, I remember my old milkman, his name is Dave. He got word through the grapevine that after moving away and going into the field of insurance, that the guy that replaced him found out I was like terminally sick. And so he called up and insisted with Julia. He had to get to me. He did. And he said, if you, if you'll meet me at a coffee shop, I can talk to you about some important factors for insurance. And I'm like, man, the gall of this guy calling me up to talk about the end of my life. He's praying on me. He's a rainmaker. And um, so I thought, well, it's probably the right thing to do. So I popped a bunch of Oxycontin. I got down to this coffee shop and we started talking. And that's when the tide gets really crazy, like wackadoodle. So my perspective, um, Dave, the milkman, now insurance guy is talking to me. And pretty soon this guy walks past our table and Dave thinks that he, he he doesn't know if he recognizes them or if I recognize him. He says, do you know this guy that passed us? And I said, no, I don't. Can we get back to this topic? Because these pills are going to wear off and I got to be out of here. So he starts talking. He goes, I think you need to meet that guy. And I said, why? And then it hit me. Maybe, maybe this is the miracle. So that guy came over. We had a conversation. He's ultimately, and I'm, I'm condensing this considerably for the sake of a short story here, but ultimately he said, I can't help you. I know who can. And I'm so thankful to a gentleman named Tom Chenault, who was that person in the coffee shop that happened to be there. And I'm so glad that Dave had that premonition to stop in mid-sentence away from his own agenda and make it about me. And so... Um, I got introduced to a gentleman named Dr. Joel Wallach. Some people have heard of his name before. Matter of fact, that's his picture right there. I, I so, see him. <laughs> yeah, and uh, he's got a new movie out now called The Audacity of Health, which really explains the things that I was able to bite on, um, which changed the course of my life. I had a conversation with him. He said, he said, Scott, I know you're emotional. And, and by the way, I was sobbing on this phone call. I get on the phone and I was just sobbing. He goes, it's okay, calm down. When you can hear me, I'm going to give you some good news and some bad news. He said, if you do what I say, you'll be fine. He said, if you don't do what I say, your doctors are right. You, you got a short expectancy. So what was happening is my nerves were dying and that leads to everything else. So from there, um, I took his advice. I got well, 
Um, it was simple nutritional protocol and eating habits. I got well. And that was in a short time span, Richard. We're talking about like um, in 30 days or so, I was feeling on top of the world. Um, in 60 days, I, I was back to all normal functions. In 90 days, um, I had a story to tell. And it was pretty powerful. So, um, you know, to this day, I, I give a lot of credit for the fact that a lot of things lined up. I, I give credit to Dr. Wallach for saving my life in that regard. And we didn't start building longevity right away. In the beginning, it was all about my health. It had nothing to do with what the business could do for me or what I could do for the business. I just wanted to get my health back. So it was really in like the early portions of 2012 that we started to turn our attentions toward the business side of longevity. All right. Well, tell us about that. So you had considerable experience, both as a networker, company owner, trainer, coach, personal development, um, a great philosophy of sacrifice now for abundance later, great philosophies around commitment. You know, those 19 airline tickets you bought when you didn't have 19 people going to the convention, that's, uh, that's pretty courageous. I love that story. Thank you. So you, brought, you brought a lot to bear on longevity. So your numbers, I just want to caution people listening to this, go, oh my gosh, I could never do what they've done. Well, yes, of course you can. This is not an overnight success story. This is a 30-year success story. But, but what I want you to pay attention to, listeners, is pay attention to the formula. Because, I mean, I didn't know Scott's numbers before I agreed to interview him. I just agree to interview anybody that's, that's built in a legitimate company. And they've built a big team. And they've got a great reputation. They're the kind of person Scott talked about earlier that it's about your name, the person, not about the name of the company. And But out of the 107 now people that I've interviewed, uh, probably at least 100 of them, maybe 95 of them, have proven out this formula about how many people they personally enrolled in the first couple of years and what that grew into in year five, six, and seven. And, and so that's what I want, to, want you to pay attention to, not whether or not you could actually do what Scott and Juliet have done, but pay attention to the numbers. So... Tell us about the build in longevity. Obviously, you had a phenomenal product story. You got experience in the business and you hit the ground running. How many people did you enroll in, let's say, the first year and then maybe year two? Can you approximate those numbers? I can. I would say that in the first year, Richard, we enrolled somewhere between 90 and 100 people in the first year. And by the end of year two, we had probably enrolled, you know, closer to 150. Okay. So you really front loaded the first year and then you backed off the second year. 90 to 100 is, you know, roughly a couple of people a week, which is a blistering pace. You obviously had systems to help onboard them and train them. Because without a system, you can't support that many people. Tell us about um, who you approached and what was the story that you told people that compelled them to take a look at what you were doing in longevity? 
Yeah, that's a great question, Richard. And this is probably one of my favorite topics in the whole world because you and I both know that people say all kinds of things. And, you know, I don't know if it's, it's, if it's in this uh, conversation we're having or if you and I were talking in the previous one, but, you know, I remember you saying, I'm not sure if it's a, a blessing or a curse to have been in the industry for as long as you were before starting Longevity and, and to have been in a, you know, a handful of companies prior to that, including having your own, um, was that easier or harder? And I would tell you that um, it can be a lot harder. You know, sometimes people think that, you know, there is something to the experience, but let's, let's be real. You know, it's difficult to take somebody from something that clearly didn't go as well as you thought it was going to go into something else that's supposed to go better than you think it was supposed to go and have people continue to believe that. And so it, you know, it comes down to confidence and you're willing to be humble and to tell the truth and to admit, admit, you know what, we made mistakes or we judged wrong or we, um, we could have done a better job. And here's how we're going to do it differently next time. You know, we learn to be humble, like hat in hand, uh, vulnerable, uh, just very, very transparent. And I think that, A, went a really long ways for us. So, you know, when we started to build longevity, it, it's, we had to go through the same things that other people are going to do. Are we going to talk to the people that we've already talked to? And in fact, that's what we decided to do. We decided to talk to the people that we had already talked to instead of saying, oh, we've already talked to everyone we know. Well, since when was that a problem? I mean, I can think of so many other areas of life where I've invited people to do lots of things in life. And I kept going back to the same people, whether it was going snow skiing or going out to eat. They didn't say, oh, you already asked me out to eat once before. Why would I go out to eat with you again? You already asked me to go see the Rockies game or the Nuggets game. Why would you ask me to do that again? So I literally thought to myself, why would I shy away just because I asked them about a network marketing opportunity once? Why wouldn't I do it again? Why, would it, why is it okay to do those things in every other area, but not in network marketing? And so we sucked it up. We still made our list of not lowest hanging fruit, the smartest, sweetest, best, taking, best tasting, ripest fruit. And so whether we spoke to them or not, we said, these are the people we would prefer to build around. Now, did they all say yes? Or man, are we on board with you right now? No, they didn't do that. However, we didn't shy down just because there was a possibility that they would reject us or turn us down. We were convicted and confident and competent. Three C words, convicted, competent, and uh, competent. So confident. So those three things are extremely important and we, we took the time to have that. For example, we didn't just jump on board with longevity emotionally and say, okay, we're off to the races. We said, okay, we're looking at longevity as a career. We're looking at it as a career. So we said, there's things that go into decision-making when you look at something as a career versus a hobby or, or an experimental project. We're going, okay, who are the people behind this company? And what are their products like? What's that messaging like? What, what is the compensation plan like? What is timing like? What is training like? What are systems like? 
and, and, and the integrity of, of the people. And, and let's just make sure we really understand this Dr. Wallet character. So we did the diligence because we looked at it as a career so that by the time we opened our mouth for the first time, we actually believed 100% of what came out of our mouth because it was our truth. Does that make sense, Richard, for starters? For sure. Yeah. So with confidence and conviction and competence, we went in front of our people and we would say things like, hey, you know what? It may sound surprising to you and you're probably aware that we made a transition. However, I want you to know. And, and, and so we'd start there and I'd say, you know, listen, I don't know where you're at in your life in this exact moment, but I'd like to explore some possibilities. If you're open, this is my favorite thing. If you're open to exploring possibilities, I'd love to have a conversation with you. And that tells you right there, am I using my time wisely or am I wasting my time? And so I always start there. I'd say, hey, hey Richard, I know you're a busy guy, um, but here's the thing. If you're open to exploring some possibilities, I'd like to put something in front of you that makes all the sense in the world to me and I'd like to see if you would feel the same way about it. And, and, and on top of that, we would also discover in that same time period what it was going on in their life that we could fix. I found out that if people have problems, then you can be a superhero, right? It's, it's always the victim that needs a superhero. So I'd look for people that were struggling in something, that wanted to improve something, get better on something. And, and, and we'd go from there. And if we could identify that, we had a really high likelihood. So we just got to be focused on that. We were masters of that particular um, niche. And we did all the stuff on the front side so that by the time we put information in front of them, we already knew what their answer was gonna be. We were never wasting our time. We knew what the answer would be before they saw information. And so, we, we hustled. Could you drill down on something? Because um... You know, most of the people listening to these, you know, probably have not been in four or five network marketing companies. But even if you've been in one before and you approached all these people or you've been in the same one forever, but you've approached all these people and they, you know, maybe they kind of have a feeling, well, you know, you've been doing this for two or three years and I don't think you're doing that well. Or you got me into this thing before and then it didn't work out or then you quit and did something like, why should I follow you again? I think the story that you created to empower yourselves to go back and speak to people, even though you may have led them into an opportunity before that ultimately did not work out. That story that you created to empower yourself is really, really important. And, it, you know, it can be like a story like, well, those people are too busy, you know, or they're, more, they're more successful than I am, or, you know, they're going to think I'm an idiot for being in network marketing, or they know I'm not successful because I've been doing this for two or three years, or I got them into something seven years ago that didn't work out. All of those stories are what keep people from powerfully and authentically talking to their network. And you created a story that even though you may have recruited some people into programs that you didn't stick with or didn't work out, you created a story that it was okay for you to go back and talk to them again. And I want to drill on that story, that creative interpretation that you made up that gave you a green light 
to go talk to these people. So can you speak to that and also speak to the language that you use? Let's say I'm somebody that, um, you know, I was in one of these companies with you and it didn't work out. How would you speak to me about longevity? Yeah, so first of all, it's, it, it wasn't ever about longevity for me. It was about the people I was associated with. So once again, we make a big deal about the name of a company as if the company itself is supposed to magically, you know, perform all the outcome. And I could go stand on a street company or street corner and say the name of my company and everyone would just pass by. Hey, great. Thanks for the name. Um, but they're not, they're not going to follow the name of a company. They're going to follow a leader. So I knew that I had to look and, and, and do my very best to get as close as I could to be a master leader. And sometimes when you're a master leader, you realize I'm not able to lead by myself. You need a running mate. You know, Batman had Robin. So um, I would encourage everyone in this situation, before you just jump in the water and start swimming, figure out who your running mate is figure out who your third party higher authority is going to be so that you can take all the darts, all the arrows, all the ammunition that can come flying at you so quickly when you attempt to present yourself as an expert on a topic that maybe the people you're talking to don't have all the respect or, or, or additional admiration for you anymore, maybe because of past experiences, you've got to be able to deflect. So you need to find out who that is in your company. And if it's not your sponsor or enroller, which it very well may not be, they may not be as focused or as hungry as you, they may not be accredited yet, or they may not be documented yet, they could be great people, but you've got to keep going to the place to where you can identify that really key third party, higher authority. There's a statement. It says this, if, if you can introduce your people to a third party, higher authority and get all their questions answered, then they'll follow you. But if you attempt to be that person to the person you're recruiting, they won't. There's going to be some underlying potential skepticism that exists. So people will follow you and join you if they get their questions answered by a third party, higher authority. I believe in that. I've leveraged that till the cats come home. And so um, when I got started in longevity, I went on a whiteboard and I drew a picture. I drew a schematic and I said, this is my dream. This is my wish list. And I, I sketched out all the people that I was going to go target. We took a picture of that. And then I got my sponsor and enroller to look at that picture and say, are you on board with me to accomplish that? That's a lot of people. We're going to have to talk fast and you need to be the expert in third-party higher authority. I'm going to deflect that to you. I'm going to set the table and put people in front of the information. You're the presenter. You're the information source. Are you willing to make that commitment? Now, had they said, that's a tall glass of water to fill. I don't know, Scott. I just, I'd have said, you're not it. So this is not a joke to me, Richard. This is not something, most people don't understand this. They come into network marketing and they think, oh, everything will just work itself out. Whether that's by hype or just osmosis or energy or you read a great book, I don't know. Um, but a lot of people don't understand this particular piece and it's probably the most critical thing. So fortunately, my sponsor in the roller, Tom, he said, I'm in. 
I'm going to lock arms with you. I'm willing to get dirty. I'm willing to get muddy. I, I'm willing to take your phone calls at 10 o'clock at night, five o'clock in the morning. And I said, perfect. And so I literally did that. Juliet and I, we put the butts in chairs or the ears on the phone or the eyes on the screen. And that was our job. End of story. Even though, and this is a critical piece for people to understand, even though arguably, and by all people's measurements, could we have presented ourselves after all those years of experience and the documentation we had? I would think so. Um, could we have answered everyone's questions? I would think so. But what we were demonstrating was the art of a system. And we wanted to demonstrate to people what that system looked like. And we didn't want to be the exception to the system to say, oh, we've got, all, we've got this all figured out. Here's what you do, but we're going to do something different. We knew that it was important to demonstrate. So now, when I went to people, to get back to one of your other questions, I would just simply say, hey, um, we're on the front side of something really powerful. And with every cell in my being, I believe it's a phenomenal track and it's very timely. And I believe personally, it would have a huge impact on you and your family. However, I'm not sure where you are. So let's talk about that. Are you happy with where you're at or are you looking for something? And it was never about, hey, I'm in another network marketing company. You gotta come join me. You'd once again be great at this. We never had those conversations. Tell me where you're at in life, what's going on for you. And I'd say, listen, would you give me an opportunity to serve you in that and help you with that and help you solve that challenge? And it was a yes or no question. If they said, no, I got it, or you, you, know, you had me disillusioned once before, or I, I followed you down a path and it didn't go the way you wanted to, so we're done, nobody said that. And, and the fear is that's what people will say to you. What they're looking for you for, for from you is, do you believe what you're saying? because everybody makes mistakes and not everything people touch turns to gold. So why would they think it would happen that way in network marketing? Not everything you touch turns to gold. We learn, we get older and smarter and wiser. So that's the position I took and they'd say, here's what's going on. Um, and I'd say, great, would you allow me to introduce you to someone so that you could hear from them what I heard that I became so convicted over. They're an expert on this topic. They're well down the road and the answer was, yeah, sure, no problem, absolutely. I'd say nine times out of 10, that was the sentiment that came back. So Richard, we didn't have, knowing that and using that theory, we didn't have troubles or issues putting people in front of information. And I hope that came across cleanly and it makes sense no matter what company you're in. Yeah, so one of the things that you said that I, I just think is so important for people to hear is that even though you didn't need to use Tom as, as your partner, your running buddy, your third party expert, you used him anyway because that models the system. Right. So you uh, and Juliet may have been able to do all of that, but the new person you're bringing on, you know, they watch what we do. That's correct. If I hand you a, you know, or send you a link to a videotape and say, well, I, you asked me a bunch of questions and I say, well, I don't know. All I know is I watch this videotape or this, this, this online video or, or something like that. Then they see themselves and go, well, I could do that. I can say, I don't know. I just watched this video or I don't know about that. I know about this. And so you use Tom as the expert. So they would use then you as the expert. You would be their running buddy. You would That's be their right. third party. And that allows people to say, well, 
If that's the way it's done, I can do that. When we present ourselves, obviously, as the expert, new people look at what we do, what we're modeling, and they say, well, I can't do that. I can't answer all those questions. And so that's brilliant that even though you, I mean, that, that took uh, a lot of wisdom. That's one of the big payoffs of your 30 years is that you had the wisdom to not, not display yourself as the expert, as the guru, as the master of the business, because that actually pushes people away. So let's get, let's get right to the build uh, before we run out of time. Uh, so you put 90 or 100 people in your first year, another 50 in your second year. What did that grow into in terms of, I really like people to try to understand the exponential growth. Um, I don't know if you have these numbers, but maybe you could just guess at them. You know, I don't know if you've ever seen, you know, uh, Bill Britt's sort of his pyramid of his, of his build to 2 billion a year in sales in Amway, but his presentation is that he presented to 1,200 people and 300 people got in and 85 people were active and basically were using the products. 33 of them tried to build. 11 of them did build. And it ended up being 1.5 million people and $2 billion a year in sales. So do you have a sense of what your flow is? So you start at the top of, you've personally enrolled now in seven years, I think you told me 300 people, 150 of them the first two years. What has that flowed into in terms of, so it starts big and it flows down to the people who actually build, and then you take the people that it actually build and it flows out into this exponential growth of a sales organization. Mm -hmm. So out of your 300 people, I don't know, maybe you know this, out of the 300 people you've enrolled, how many of them uh, roughly are active every month just using the products at least? Yeah, so out of those three, 300 or the, you know, the two to 300, depending on what year we're in with the enrollment question here, um, you know, today I'd say that probably uh, 15 to 20% of those people are active. Yeah, so let's say 20%, that would be 60 of them are using the products. Mm -hmm. What's your best guess out of those 60? How many are recruiting every month? Yeah, so some of those people are there are customers by default. So they're like, oh, you know, this is hard. Um, I don't know if I want to do the sponsoring thing. And hey, that's okay. I never make any judgments to people. My job isn't to judge people. My job is to make sure that people have information that they need to solve a challenge in their life at the time we had a discussion. That's my job. And, and, and it's to fuel the fire. It's to salt the oats if I can do that. All that stuff is, is perfectly appropriate. So today... Um, you know, it's not a reflection of, of, of the activity of all the people we've enrolled, but we've pared it down to nine people. Okay, so we've pared all this down to nine primary legs of business. Now, these nine primary legs of business, they're off to the races and they're independent, they're standalone. You know, if I didn't do a whole lot more than just encourage them and tell them I'm proud of them and recognize them when things are going great. If that was my role at this point, if that's appropriate and Juliet's role, um, it would be, it would be pretty powerful. 
I mean, we spend our time today mostly traveling around the world in the 17 countries we do business in, teaching people the systems, the principles, and the methodologies for how we overcame and persevered to be where we are today. So um, in answering that question, let me start here. And if it's appropriate, I'm just going to do just a slight show and tell just so people can see. So this is, the, for anyone watching this, believe me, I'm, this is not meant to brag or to be boastful or anything like that. I just want to show you something really cool. So I'm excited and I'm assuming all of you watching this are my friends and you'd be happy for us. So, you know, up there on that mantle, you know, from the far side over there, all across this deal over here, and there's some over there, and there's some over on those shelves. You know, that's, that's not there to say, look how cool we are. It's there to say, it's, a, it's, it's evidence of a story. Okay, it's evidence of a story. So you go down the line from there to there, it's like 2012, we were rookies of the year. So when we came on board with Longevity, I don't know the exact number, but I know it was hundreds of thousands of people were already part of Longevity. It was a 15-year-old company when we started. Right. So this overcomes the, here's, here's some, I think it's cool, Richard, is this overcomes a very popular question or objection where people say, oh, you know, you just had to have been lucky and gotten in early. We weren't lucky or early. I was unlucky to have all those health challenges. I would never sign up for that stuff. We didn't come here on luck. Um, we, we needed a miracle and it was 15 years old. So, you know, now, you know, we're in the, top minuscule percentage of success stories inside of longevity. There's five people in the world that have our title in the company. And so that's pretty cool stuff. It took us, I don't know, three and a half, four, four years, somewhere in there to reach that very top position. And that's not an incredibly lengthy period of time, but no. it, it's all pared down to nine. And now today, well, you know, you asked me earlier about, you know, like five years, where is it at? And so after five years, we had about 150,000 people inside of our organization. And after um, seven years in the business, we have approximately 200,000 people inside of the business. And it grows rapidly every single month by a massive uh, group of people. You know, the bigger something gets, the faster it gets bigger. And I think that's the principle that people have to remember. So if that answers your question, Richard, that's just kind of an idea of that big siphon coming in and all whittling down to those magical nine people that- Nine, nine that has then grown into 200,000 and- Yes. Out of 200,000, the more you have recruiting, the more you have recruiting. So Amen. your growth, your bottom line growth, just get staggering growth every month. Congratulations. That's right. You know, that's the part, Scott, that I, I know you and Juliet know that if, if people can learn to believe in the inevitability of the exponential growth of the sales organization and the, the abundance that comes with it, and then, of course, all the soft benefits, the, the relationships, the love, the contribution, the travel, the adventure, the learning of different cultures, the friendships that are developed, uh, you know, what it really boils down to for people, and this is the last question I want to ask you, is, is the work worth it? Because there is work. And maybe, maybe the number one thing that, is, that people consider as work is if you're going to do this, you really have to declare to your warm market, your 
your network, your world, your life, that you're doing it. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't put your toe in the water and no, you can't tell people I'm thinking about building a, a business in young living. What do you think? And if, if you think it's a good idea, then, then maybe I'll do it. <laughs> right. Right. Work. You got, you got to, you have to declare, you know, it's like you got to put the hat on that says, you know, I used to criticize and ridicule these people. Now I are one. Right. And you have to do it proudly. You have to step into it. And then of course, you know, that's part of the work. And then, then you got to actually do the work, which you got to call these people up and you got to tell them your story. And then of course your story in the beginning is not very good. So then you got to like hone your story and craft your story and, and get better. You know, you got to be willing to learn and be coached and practice, practice, practice. And then you got to do the work until. That's right. And how long is until? I don't know. Could be six months. Could be 16 months. Could be 26 months. Until. And until your plane just gets lift off. Until you have, you know, my sense about it is it's somewhere around three or 400 active people on your team. You get three or 400 active people on your team. You got probably one or two or three people on your team that are better than you are. And when I say better, I mean they're more ambitious. They have more connections. They have more credibility. They they have more uh, they have more talent. They're better entrepreneurs. They're better builders. And you get at least one mm-hmm. on your team better than you, and you got liftoff. Right. That's right. That's right. Speak to, you know, I'm I'm the new person. New meaning, I might have been in this two or three or four years, but I haven't done the work yet. I haven't done the work every day, every month until liftoff. That's what's new about me is I'm not there yet. Speak to me about the work being worth it. Absolutely. Well, you know, you said a couple of really profound things there. First of all, anything related to aviation, I'm all in about. That's that's my background. I have a passion for flying and I love those stories. Well, I always start here, you know, over my shoulder here someplace is a book called The Magic of Thinking Big. And it's an old classic. It's a powerful book. It's a great read. But, you know, if, if I was to have a conversation with you, say you were new, Richard, you know, I, if we were buddies, I'd say, you know, Richard, I've known you for a long time. What's like the, the craziest, hairiest, most audacious, big thinking picture thing you could think of for your life? If you could have it all, do it all, be it all, experience it all, what's like the nuttiest out of the box thing you would ever want to accomplish with your life? And the reason you put those parameters about it is because I don't want you to think small. I want you to think big, like really big. And I'm going to even question you if you like even start thinking small. I'm going to be like, what kind of a response is that? I said crazy, audacious, ridiculous. I didn't say middle of the road. And I get you thinking. And then I say, Richard, could that be accomplished by going to work tomorrow? And you would obviously say, no, I don't, I don't think it could. No, no, it couldn't. And I'd say, you're right. Do you want to do something about that? And now you're thinking either, again, I love yes and no questions. It's yes or no, because now I know right up front whether I want to take time to invest into you, because that's what I got is my time. So if you're like, no, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of good where I'm at right now. I'd be like, awesome. End of story. I don't go, come on, Richard, and, and start, you know, pulling on you. I don't have time for that. And neither does any other network marketer out there. You either like chocolate chip cookies or you don't. And there's no kind of. 
So you go into surgery. Hey, how's this doctor? Kind of good. Really? I don't want kind of good. I want someone that's sharp, that knows exactly who they are, what they want. So you're either capable of dreaming or you're not. And it's the person who, who absolutely gets obsessed for something that's not in their grasp, that they wish they had, that they know they can't get by going to work tomorrow. That's the person you want to recruit and prospect and bring into the fold. They're worth the time, but that's how you identify them right up front. Now, everything else works itself out because they have a dream and they want it. It's not lip service. They, they can feel it. They can taste it. And you know it. You've looked in their eyes. You can tell they're telling the truth. Now I'm going to explain to you, listen, you know, what I do and what I can help you do to solve that, that yearning and burning desire you have is I'm going to help you get this plane off the ground. But remember what we talked about earlier. I'm not going to play the expert. I may be the expert pilot, but I'm not going to tell them that. I'm going to use a third-party higher authority. All the information will come to them. And, 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 and now I believe they're going to say, yes, this plan makes more sense than the one I'm currently on right now. So they say yes to that. And I think that the likelihood of that from a good third-party higher authority, a good presentation or good tools and good, good technology that has professional in them, all the same thing in this example, they've got that now. They're going to say yes. And, you know, one of the first things I do is I teach them something called the 72-hour game plan. It's an expectation and accountability for a new person to perform in the first 72 hours. Why? Because, well, you probably know this too, but all the research in the world shows that people are on cloud nine in the moment they see something exciting, then they go home and they have a conversation and then they go to work and they have a conversation and then they talk to a spouse and they have a conversation. All of those are ratchet down. How do we keep people ratcheting up from cloud nine and not coming down and you give them something to do? So we don't have time to talk about that today. I just wanted you to know there's things that you should give your people to do immediately that are relevant and money making activities. So don't give them busy work that's not a money-making activity, if you give them a money-making activity, then they're going to experience the products, they're going to experience the things that will allow their business to grow, and they're going to get a check immediately. You put a check in someone's pocket, I don't care if it's $9, you put a check in someone's pocket their first month in the business, it's all over in a good way. You don't put a check in their pocket in the first night, in the first 30 days, it's all over in a bad way. So, the, the, this idea of, of something to do in the first 72 hours, Richard, it's about this. Listen, we're in a plane together and we're going to go someplace quickly because we'd rather get to the promised land quicker versus slower so we can row a boat or we can take a jet aircraft. Let's take the jet aircraft. And as a pilot, we're going to get out on the runway and we're going to apply the throttle. But Richard, I don't want you to think that this is going to happen overnight. It's going to take hard work. You're going to learn some things. You're going to feel, you're going to have moments of discouragement. Remember that all of the resistance, all of the vibration, all of the tenseness is felt while you're going down the runway. You may be going 150 miles an hour down the runway before liftoff. But as long as your wheels are on the ground, your, your business is not lifted off, even though you're going fast. So we got to build this up to speed. And once we get up and we're in the air, the wheels stop vibrating. They get tucked up underneath. You have no resistance to the airflow over the airframe and it feels smooth and it gets nice and quiet. We're not going to think, you know, when, when you're in takeoff mode, even after you lift off the ground, you're still climbing, the throttle is still all the way forward. You don't ever pull back on that throttle until you get where you want to go and then you can let off. 
you know, of, of that throttle. So I love to explain all that to people. And I hope that analogy makes sense on how I communicate with people right out of the gate. So there's no false pretensions or wishful thinking over promising and under delivering has to go in the trash can. We have to tell people the truth that this is as hard as anything they've ever done, even as hard as their job. But the difference is the rewards. What's the reward? We're together. We have systems, we have training, we have help, we have people, we have everything on our side. You will have a lot more likelihood to succeed at getting what you want most out of life if you stay this course and you don't quit. So our job is to keep people active and busy and doing money-making activities and not leaving their side while they're in that growth mode. Yeah, and another piece of that that pilots understand but not everybody else understands is that when you're taking a plane off, the runway is a fixed distance. Yes, it is. You got to have lift off before you run out of runway. You got to get to rotation speed before you run out of runway. And what people don't necessarily realize about their network marketing careers is we, you got a runway. If you haven't lifted off it yet, there is a runway. How, how long is the runway? Well, it depends on how much tolerance your family has for you messing around. That is for sure. You have for messing around. How much tolerance your network, the people that you're eventually going to talk to, have for you? Well, you've been in this for two years, three years. You haven't done anything yet. That that attitude creates a, a runway for you. So it's really important for people to realize that your runway is not infinite. There, there is an end to it. It may not be 5,000 feet paved. You know, it, it, it may be 7,000 feet. You may have time, but you don't have forever. And you gotta get to rotation speed before you get to the end of it, or it's, it's just, it's all gonna end bad. And so, like Scott said, nobody takes off. Going half throttle, and then you get 200 yards down the runway, and you know, oh, you see a shiny object over there, or something happens, you go, oh, I'm gonna pull it back to idle while I curl up here on the couch and watch TV for a week, and then I'm gonna go further down the runway for half throttle. There's only one way to take off full throttle until you get to rotation speed, and then you get lift off. There's no plane that's ever taken off in the world that starts and stops down the runway. So the systems that, that you have employed, Scott, are, I mean, your team is so fortunate to have you and Juliet, your wisdom, your systems, your distinctions, your training, your leadership, really, really powerful stuff. I trust people listening to this interview got some great nuggets from you to deploy for their own teams. Uh, I want to thank you so much for sharing your story, sharing your wisdom with everybody on the Hero Call. And I got one last question for you. Sure. You've only been at this for seven years. What are you doing over the next four or five years? If I check in on you five years from now, what's the story going to be for you and Juliet and Longevity? Well, that is a great question. You know, a lot of people think that once you um, have achieved a certain level of success, maybe you've reached that top spot or you've gotten in this elite little circle that, you know, things get boring at that point. For me, um, 
I'm more excited about the next four or five years than all the excitement we've had in the first four or five years. I mean, where we go from here as a couple, as a family, as leaders in longevity, as a company, um, I see that the sky is still the limit and there's a lot to explore. It's kind of like we've taken off and, you know, Richard, I'd like to go to another altitude, not explored. How does that sound for you? You know, a lot of jet aircraft, they cruise around 30 to 40,000 feet in elevation. I'd like to see what it looks like to be at 80,000 feet or 100,000 feet. How about if we just raise the altitude a little bit? And it's not like you have to do a whole lot of things that are different. Once you have a success formula and a success philosophy and you've developed a culture, you know, you keep doing what's working. You keep doing what's working. And over time, again, the theory continues. The bigger it gets, the faster it gets bigger. In this case, I just want to continue to keep the throttle down and to raise the altitude. And the reason I'd like to go higher, the view is better. Uh, the second reason I'd like to go higher is eventually you enter orbit. And orbit is a whole lot faster than anything we can understand. We're talking about many, 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 many thousands of miles an hour. And, you know, I'll leave you with this final thought. A good friend of mine is Joe Tanner. Joe Tanner is a NASA astronaut retired. He's been to space four times. He went up and built on the copper solar panels up there. And roughly speaking, there's about 300 people, as far as we know, that are documented to have ever been to space. And of all the billions and billions of people that have ever been to space, or have ever lived on this planet, excuse me, um, 300, I mean, what's the statistics on that? It's like 0.0000000 something of 1% have been to space. And he's one of those guys. And he's my friend. I've learned so much from this guy about thinking and belief and self-confidence. He got rejected repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly um, on his passion and dream to be one of those next guys going to space. And he didn't stop. He was relentless in the pursuit to pull that off. And when he finally did it, he didn't do it once. He did it twice, three, four times. And now, you know, he was on the cover of Time magazine. They took a picture from the inside of the space shuttle, reflected off his mask. And there was a perfect picture of Earth. You can probably go Google this. It's an awesome photo. And that's Joe Tanner. So I asked him one day, you know, a lot of people say, hey, you know, what's it like to go to the bathroom in space? And they ask all these, you know, bizarre questions. How do you do this? How do you do that? That would be weird. And he loves answering those. But I asked him a question that I like the answer that he shared. I said, of all the people, how in the world did you, I mean, there's gotta be more people that are better or more qualified than you. How did you become one of those 300 people to make it up there? That's pretty crazy to be in that small group of people. And he goes, it wasn't that hard. And I go, what are you talking about? You got rejected. And he goes, that was the easy part. He said, the, the hard part, was just convincing myself that I was good enough, that I was worthy, that I was capable, that I could pull that off, and that there wasn't any reason why it shouldn't be me next. Now I think about that and I'm going, how can we relate that response back to our attitude toward building this business? And he said, the reason I made it is because nobody else believed it was possible and it opened up the window for me that it was possible because no one else was attempting. So how many times can we say, well, how do I get to the top position of my company? The metaphor is that's outer space. How do I get to be one of those elite? How do I get to be one of those really minuscule percentages? Is it lucky? No, it's the person who says, just like Joe Tanner did, you know what? It wasn't that hard. 
not as many people were attempting. They all got out of my way because they didn't believe it was possible. I just chose to believe that not only was it possible, but I deserve to be next. So Richard, that's my final thought for you. And uh, that's what I'd like to leave everybody on. And the bigger you build it, the more people you help. Indeed, sir. Thank you so much. Beautiful interview. Love it. Hey, gang. Uh, this is Hero Call number 107, worthy of listening to a few times. Thank you very much for your support. And success to you. Over and out. Richard Blissbrook. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Richard Bliss Brooks Network Marketing Heroes Podcast. If you are inspired and are ready to create your own success story, then it is time to take advantage of some of the top network marketing tools available. Pick up the top recruiting tool that has prospects saying, yes, the four-year career and the four-year career for women. Get your mindset right. Without a clear vision, success is lost. Check out the best-selling book on vision, Mach 2 with your hair on fire. Learn to think like a successful person with this step-by-step -step guide on how to break through your self-imposed limitations. Mach 2 Vision Training is a 90-minute four-part video training where you get Richard to walk you through crafting your vision. It's a must for anyone looking to step outside the box and hit the ground running. For 10% off your order, use the discount code HERO at checkout. If you're serious about building your business, make sure to subscribe to Richard's blog for all the latest tools and articles. This success story is not typical. It is meant to inspire you and show you what's possible. It is not what you should expect to accomplish. Your income will depend entirely on you, your commitment, your work ethic, your leadership, and your ability to acquire customers and inspire sales leaders to join your team. Most people who start off intending to build a sales team do not maintain their motivation to continue.